Our scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Congregation, listen carefully. This is the very word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And it is our desire this morning, Lord, to handle your word well, not to add anything to it nor detract anything from it. And Father, we realize we can only do this by the guidance and and enlightenment of your spirit. So we pray now that your spirit would enlighten our hearts, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and humble hearts to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are considering a letter written by James. The fact that he, that he uh, describes himself only by his first name suggests that he is a man of notoriety. He is well known to the church. Paul refers to him in Galatians 2.9 as a pillar of the church. In Galatians 1.19, the Apostle Paul calls him James, the Lord's brother. We are considering a letter this morning written by the brother of Jesus. He was the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. Think about this. He grew up with Christ. He daily witnessed the perfect life of the perfect son. And yet in John chapter 7, verse 5, we are told that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. Despite the daily witness of the incarnate Son of God, James did not believe. 
he was a friend of the world and ultimately an enemy of God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, that wonderful chapter by Paul on the resurrection, we are told that James had an eyewitness account of the resurrected Christ. And it is believed that through that account, James came to faith. He was born anew by the Spirit. Another man, well known also by his first name, the 5th century heretic Pelagius, held that Christ's great contribution to our spiritual well-being was that he lived an exemplary life. He put on visible display that life that you and I are to live. He gave visible expression to that pattern of obedience we are to mimic. Pelagius denied that there was any inherent corruption that is derived from Adam to us, what we call the doctrine of original sin. Rather, he held that Adam's impact on humanity was essentially that of a bad example. Adam sinned, and he set a bad example for subsequent generations who then perpetuated that pattern through the principle of imitation. Pelagius asserted that we sin because we imitate Adam. It is not our heart that is corrupt. It is our environment. And so man does not require redemption in a new birth, but a new environment, a new example. Jesus is then seen as that counter example to Adam. Jesus did it right. Be like Jesus. Well, perhaps you can see that in the story of James, you have the story of one of the most anti-Pelagian events you can possibly imagine. James grew up with Jesus. He saw the exemplary life of Christ. He was constantly exposed to the perfect example of his sinless sibling. And yet through it all, James did not believe. He rejected the Messiah. You see, like so much of Israel... Having a bloodline which ties you to a hero of the faith, whether it's Abraham in the past or the Messiah living in your own home, it is of little value if it is not paired with saving faith. And yet still, does it not seem odd at first glance that James in his greeting does not mention this unique relationship he bore to Jesus? Why not introduce himself as James, the brother of the Lord? Wouldn't that enhance his credentials? Wouldn't that give greater weight to his words if he were to point out that he had an exposure to Jesus that not any of the 12 apostles even had? Why would he neglect this? Well, it's likely because being a blood relative of Jesus didn't profit him and because it was replaced with something far greater. James chooses to introduce himself not as the brother of Jesus, but a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith, he bears a new relationship to Christ. He is a bondservant of Jesus, not by natural birth, but by supernatural regeneration. And the Greek word that is here translated bondservant is a very strong word. It can even carry the sense of enslavement. 
To be a bondservant of Jesus is to be bound to him. It is to be under his supreme authority. It is to be overshadowed by the spirit. It's to have one's affections taken captive by God. James is now subjugated. He's subjugated to the hope of heaven. James is now enslaved. He's eternally enslaved. Eternally enslaved to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He is a captive of the Lord forever. In the irony of those many reversals we see in the Bible, James is a slave to liberty. And so he is now free to serve, free to serve the Lord. He is no longer the brother he once was. He is now a bondservant to Christ. And Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, reminds us using the same word that we too are bondservants of the Lord bound to Christ in glory. And this bondservant writes this letter to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. That's an interesting way to describe his audience. The 12 tribes of Israel haven't existed for some 700 years by the time James writes this epistle. 700 years prior, the Assyrians came down and carried off the 10 northern tribes. They are no more. So why would James use such an antiquated phrase? Why would he refer to the church as the 12 tribes? He does so because he is, he is pulling from Old Testament prophecy. When those 12 tribes were about to face exile, when those enemy nations were pressing upon them, doing the bidding of God to judge Israel for their unfaithfulness, God sent his prophets. And the prophets brought the word of God to Israel and reminded them that it is their unfaithfulness that put them in this predicament. But then the prophets did what we know them so well for. They looked into the future. And in the future, they saw glory. They saw many wonderful events coalescing in one period, the age of the Messiah. And as part of that future look by the prophets, they saw a new Israel. An Israel in the spirit, an Israel by faith. Ezekiel 37 is a passage perhaps many of you are familiar with which communicates this. That is the passage where we read of the valley of dry bones. And there the prophet sees this vision from God. He sees Israel as in a valley of bones and they're dry, they're dead. And God breathes on them and they take on flesh. And then God pours his spirit into them and makes them alive. And this chapter 37 comes right after that well-known passage in chapter 36 where the Lord says again, projecting into that future, I will give you a new spirit and put a new heart within you. The prophet sees that day of the resurrection of the people of God, a new Israel. And James comes in the fullness of time and directs this letter to the church, referring to them as the 12 tribes, the new Israel. Now, this new Israel in the spirit is no longer identified with an earthly homeland. This 
Israel in the spirit is more perfectly longing for a heavenly city whose architect and builder is God. And so when James references the dispersion, he is using language of exile, but he's applying it to the church. And what he's saying, in effect, is you are not home. This creates a kind of tension because by referring to them as the 12 tribes, by referring to them as the new Israel, he's saying that this prophecy is being fulfilled, but not fully. What we sometimes refer to as the already and the not yet. Peter captures this similarly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 11, when he refers to the church as aliens and exiles, or aliens and strangers. This world is under the curse of sin and death. It is a place of struggle and temptation. And yet we are a people fitted for glory. It's as if we don't belong here, and yet here we are. And so in these first 12 introductory verses, James speaks to those equipped for heaven, but scattered in this world, and so he necessarily must speak of trials. He wraps our section this morning in the repeated themes of trials and endurance. You see it in verse 2 and in verse 12. This is a microcosm of the entire epistle, for you see the same pattern in chapter 1 at the beginning here and at the very end of the book in chapter 5. The struggles of this world fall upon all indiscriminately. Certainly not in equal portions, kind of like the way the Lord describes the rain that falls from heaven. It falls upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And just like the rains from heaven, there are deserts and there are rainforests. And so with the troubles in this world, there are those who seem to get by with very little struggle and those who seem to be unable to get past one day without great struggle. And it appears to have nothing to do with whether you're righteous or not. It's part of living in a fallen world. And it's been that way since the days of the first sin of our first parents. Congregation, this is not your home. James is writing this letter to you who are a member of the 12 tribes, separated from your home for a time, dispersed. James is instructing us on how we are to live in this world, given that the Lord has already come, but he's going to come again still. Given that we are seated in heavenly places and yet daily wrestling with powers and principalities of darkness in a place that serves up sorrows seemingly without end. How does one live in the overlap of two such very different worlds? Seated in the heavenlies, yet spending our days in this fallen place. And this leads to an unexpected and challenging turn. James places the reality of trials before us. And then he exhorts and commands that we consider it all joy when these trials come. That phrase, all joy, is moved to the very front of the Greek sentence. He does that for emphasis. He's not using hyperbole. He's not intending to exaggerate. 
It's a point of emphasis. Verse 3 equates trials with the testing of our faith and points out that this testing produces something of an estimable value. It produces endurance. And endurance brings us through trials to the final day, a day captured in verse 12 with the awarding of the crown of life. Now certainly, trials are not new to the people of God. They were not new to the people of God in James' day. In fact, if you go look at the book of Job, believed to be perhaps the oldest book of the Bible, Job was tested. Everything taken from him. He had lost property, loved ones, even his own health. And then there were those comforters who, in effect, added salt to his wound. Would Job uphold his own innocence and maintain that God had wrongly struck him down? Or would he rest in the knowledge that God is good and that the Lord's ways are higher than our ways and so we trust him even in the darkest seasons? In the end, Job had to repent. And he humbled himself. He declared that God's ways are too wonderful for us. His ways are inscrutable beyond our understanding And he set his complaint aside and rested humbly in submission to God's perfect will. And God restored his fortune. Abraham was tested. God had come to Abraham and promised a son and said, Through this son Isaac, you will have many descendants. And then he comes to Abraham and says, Sacrifice your son. How can God bring about his promise of descendants through Isaac if Isaac is dead? Will Abraham trust the word of God? Will Abraham, in the face of death, rest on resurrection? Hebrews 11 says he did. And he received Isaac back as a type of resurrection. God tested Israel in the wilderness. Would they humble themselves? Would they trust him to provide? Or would they fall on their own strength? They were tested in the promised land when the nations were not removed. Would they continue to keep the way of the Lord or not? Through all these things, through all these trials, God sustained them. But though God sustained them through all of these Old Testament trials... Were they ever exhorted to consider the trials a source of joy? There's a lot of rejoicing in the Old Testament. They rejoiced in the good things God gave them. Military victory, marriage, children, a kind word. They even rejoiced in God. They rejoiced in divine forgiveness, Psalm 30, for his anger is but for a moment, joy comes in the morning. They rejoiced in divine salvation, Psalm 21, in thy salvation, how greatly the king will rejoice. They rejoiced in divine fellowship, Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy. But for all of this Old Testament rejoicing, are they ever exhorted to consider their trials a cause for joy? 
What has changed as we go from the old to the new? Why does God now command joy in the midst of trials? Shouldn't it suffice that we persevere in faith to the end? Isn't that enough? Why now the additional burden of joy? Why is our attitude being scrutinized? Imagine being told that it's not enough that you complete a grueling marathon. You must run the entire race with joy. Pelagius was wrong. Christ is not merely an example. Pelagius was wrong. The Christian life is not something just determined by our environment. Christ is not merely a template for our behavior. He is the source of life-producing spiritual vitality, and it takes up residence within our souls. By his spirit, we are being conformed to him in the inner man. He is being formed in each of us. Though the spirit was active in the life of the Old Testament believer, there is a substantive difference between how the spirit worked then and how he works now in our lives. To be sure, in the Old Testament, the symbols and ceremonies were used by the Spirit to apply the benefits of salvation to the people of God. The comfort of the gospel was really present in that old world. The thirsty soul would take the symbol as if it had been soaked in the living water of Christ and wring it tightly to try and extract every drop from it like a wet washcloth drinking every drop. Those earthly forms were spiritually beneficial. That was the age of this world with heavenly images overlaid on top of it. But now Christ has come and he has been raised and he is seated in heaven. This is the first of the final resurrection, not a picture but the reality. And it is from that realm that he pours out his spirit Upon us. Our thirst no longer quenched by drops of spiritual refreshment mediated through symbols and types, but the Spirit brings a foretaste of glory to our soul as if we were drinking directly from the cupped hands of God. Spiritual refreshment that is unmediated through temporal earthly things, the exact same way that refreshment will come to us in glory. the living water now directly working upon our souls, not through types and shadows, but directly through the Spirit's power of resurrection. The new age has dawned. And so to understand our life now lived before God in the overlap of two worlds, we need to understand the life of the resurrected Savior who is the source of that new life. If you are to understand the relationship joy now has to you regardless of circumstance, you must understand the relationship joy has to Jesus Christ. Where does true joy originate? Where does the notion even come from? 
it originates in the eternal life of God. It is one of the divine attributes. In fact, it is given a very prominent spot in that well-known cataloging of the fruit of the Spirit. Second only to love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. The God we serve and adore is a joyous God. True and lasting joy is not born from circumstance. True and lasting joy is not born at all. It's an eternal construct found in the eternal life of God. And so you see it is well founded to think of heaven as a place of unending joy because the heavenly arena is God's abode and reflects God's nature. And we are being conformed to that arena. As the Savior is now resurrected and ascended, that is where Christ is now seated, in the world of unending joy. And it is from that world that the Spirit brings Christ's gifts to the church, gifts which carry the aroma of glory. And so we are necessarily, in some sense, always connected to that joy. Consider these words from Christ. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Or consider in John 17 that high priestly prayer, Jesus' words of prayer to the Father when he says, These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We have Christ's joy. But I understand this creates a paradox. It creates a paradox for Christian pilgrims in this fallen world. For in this world we suffer and we are exposed to trials, but in Christ we are enveloped in joy. And so how am I to understand this joy when the never-ending battering of this world weighs me down with sorrows and seemingly removes any sense of joy from my experience. And how does it bring any clarity to me to call something that is not joyful a source of joy? It seems at best confusing, and it could be far worse. I'm supposed to have joy. I have Jesus. He is reigning in the arena of joy. His spirit is giving me gifts of joy, and yet I have no joy. Maybe I don't have Christ. Maybe I'm not an object of divine favor. And you can see how this can just spiral downward. We must understand a couple of things. One, this joy which is ours now is not yet what it will be in glory when there is no enemy rival, when there is no overlapping of two ages. And two, this joy does not remove trials and sorrows from this world, but asserts itself even while trials and sorrows continue. It's not that we don't feel sorrow in trial, but there is now a competing, ever-growing hope in us fueled by God himself. Listen to these words by John Calvin. 
It is indeed certain that all the senses of our nature are so formed that every trial produces in us grief and sorrow, and no one of us can so far divest himself of his nature as not to grieve and be sorrowful whenever he feels any evil. But this does not prevent the children of God to rise by the guidance of the Spirit above the sorrow of the flesh. Hence it is that in the midst of trouble they cease not to rejoice. I know many of you are probably familiar and are very fond of that wonderful comfort we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. There we're reminded that God works together for good in all things to those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Events in this world don't happen apart from divine purpose and plan. And this is true of the hard experiences too. This is why they can be called tests. God ordains them for a purpose. Trials produce endurance. And endurance brings us to the finish line where we will be complete, lacking in nothing. It is the great wonder of our sovereign God that he can take these trials and out of them associate them with the reward. They're actually used by God to further my pursuit of the reward. To that end, the trial becomes itself a stimulant of that end time joy, yet all the while still remaining a trial. It loosens my white knuckled grip upon this world and repositions my embrace more fully upon the Christ-centered world to come. God uses these trials for his own glory. He uses them to produce in us the very thing we need to have joy in their midst. The trial leads to endurance. Endurance brings me to the finish line where I am perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider these words from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You have to read the entire verse, you can't cut it off in the middle. It doesn't say, and my God will supply every need of yours, period. He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory. That's where the remedy is. Hebrews 12.2 reminds us that Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. Christ's cross depicts the most violent collision between these two contrary worlds. You have the eschatological judgment falling upon Jesus for our sins. At the same time, he is clinging to eschatological joy. And while the crushing judgment of the Father is laid upon our beloved Savior, he had contact with joy. But please note this. He was not laughing. This was not giddiness or lightheartedness. 
His joy was packaged in hope and the assurance of the incomparable blessings to come. But the season of agony on the cross was not removed. It's not one or the other. It's both. You see, our needs are not met with temporary anesthesia of earthly peace, but the enduring joy of Christ's riches and glory. Those who have found their only joy in the wealth and pleasure of this world are repeatedly exhorted in James to weep and mourn and cry out. These things are fleeting, and their exalted state will soon vanish. Their joy will disappear. But those whose hope is not anchored in earthly pleasure but in Christ will be exalted and are told in verse 9 to glory in their exaltation even though their earthly condition is unpleasant. Our passage closes in verse 12 much like it began with a focused lens upon perseverance in the midst of trial. Only here, James is not commanding. Here, it is an indicative. Here, it is a statement of fact. Here, it is a beatitude. Here, it comes to us not from the perspective of the already and the not yet, but from the perspective of completion. Here, it is considering the situation in the light of a completed act, and the one who perseveres is called blessed. Blessed is the man. Language that echoes what we read earlier in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, the blessed man walks in integrity before God. He is like a tree planted by streams. He endures in heat and drought. His leaves remain green. He continues to bear fruit because he drinks from that stream. The unrighteous are like chaff. They are blown away. They disappear. If you are a believer in Christ, then you must look at your life this way. And the call to consider all joy becomes a necessary expression of your faith, your faith in the faithfulness of God. Joy is a part of who you are regardless of situation because it is a part of the Christ who is being formed in you. But this joy is not to be confused with giddiness or a momentary lighthearted feeling. That can sometimes be a part of it. It is deeper. It is firmer. It is all-encompassing. And it is eternal. The point here this morning that James is making is not to implore us to emotional reform. James is not demanding that we create a feeling. The point is to center us on Christ. It's to center us on the never-ending, incomprehensible abundance that we have in him. When we conform our thinking and our response to trials in a Christ-centered manner, then we will wear suffering differently than the world does, taking greater inventory of the glory that is ours in him. But before I close, I want to make sure I'm not misunderstood. 
please do not misapply this. The call to consider it all joy is not a call to ignore empathy in the presence of a suffering brother or sister. We are called to mourn with those who mourn. So be genuinely sympathetic and compassionate, grieving and hurting with them. With compassion, bring genuine care like the good Samaritan. See that they are being attended to. But then keep their eyes trained on Christ. Don't let them be taken by the lies of the evil one. God has not forsaken them. He will grant them the grace and wisdom to see them through. Assure them of God's sovereign purpose and faithfulness. And help them maintain a vision of that crown of life that awaits us at the end. James was born a brother of Jesus. But he rejected his brother, and when Christ died, they were siblings no more. What a lost opportunity! What a joy it would have been if James were a believer and had been raised with Jesus. But now he writes as one who understands. Now he writes as one who believes, as one who is a member of the new community of God. And from that perspective, it is intriguing that one of the favorite words used in this short epistle by this former sibling, occurring on average almost four times a chapter and twice in our passage in verse 2 and verse 9, and that word is brother. Now united to Christ by faith, he enjoys a sibling relationship with his Lord which will endure. He now rejoices in his brother by faith who is the source of everlasting joy. And through this sibling union he has with Christ, he now enjoys a sibling relationship with the church. And the spirit of Christ now forms the image of Christ-centered joy in his soul. It forms a part of his identity. It's who he is. This is the indicative out of which he commands us all to count it all joy. He is not asking you to manufacture joy. He is asking you, he is commanding you to participate more fully in what Christ has done and who we are in him. And his story is your story too, if you have loved Christ. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Listen to the words of Jesus. 
the one whom the church can now call brother. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And no one takes present tense. No one takes your joy away from you. Brothers and sisters, the spirit of the risen Christ brings heavenly joy near to us even now. Eternity is laying hold of us in a fallen world even now so that we may have a joy that endures even now. Let's pray. Father, you have indeed supplied all of our needs according to Christ's riches and glory. In his death, we find our sins judged, and in his empty tomb, we find a picture of our own tombs. And in his ascension, we find the source of our joy. Father, we pray that you would continue to use even the struggles of this place for our good, to build up endurance by your spirit. Help us to keep our eyes centered on Christ. Pour out your spirit upon your people that we might be raised unto life, a life of endurance and joy and bring to completion the good work that you have begun. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.